Man, it's good to see y'all this morning. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor, and you're always welcome to be a part of whatever we got going on. I really appreciate everybody filling in for Brian, who's away today, and they did a great job. We're blessed with the people that God brings our way. <clears throat> Probably at some point in your life, and especially if you live long enough, you have been into a conversation with somebody and said something, and maybe had a discussion, and bits and pieces of what you said trickled out somewhere else, and all of a sudden people are saying, you said this, you said that, and you said, wait a minute. What they're doing is taking what I said out of context. You ever been in that situation and someone takes what you say out of context? Yeah, you know what I mean. Context matters, doesn't it? Context is important because it captures the reason and the rationale for us saying what we said or doing sometimes what we may have done. Now, in Jesus particularly, context matters. Uh, because it's easy for people to take Jesus and, and, and come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells us the story of Jesus, and take bits and pieces out of there and kind of build something or teach something that's out of context to what Jesus really said or meant. And, and that happens quite often. In fact, in, in the world that I'm a part of, when, when you're a pastoring, one of the fundamental, fundamental principles of preaching is that context is everything. The context in which Jesus said something, the context of which Paul wrote something, is everything. It's ultra, ultra important. Now, I'm telling you that because we're in a series trying to understand something about the context of the world in which Jesus came, and understanding that in that context, what Jesus said and did can have a profound impact upon us even more than already. And so we're in a series entitled, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus. And we're looking at the times that he lived and the, and the things that were going on in light of the things that we see in Mark chapter 1. And the one thing that I've shared with you throughout the series has been this. That in the society and culture, including Judaism, had never experienced anyone like Jesus. They never had. Get this. Who he was and what he did challenged their world. And that's just as true today as it was then. It challenges our world also. That hasn't changed. So we ask, who is Jesus? And how does he impact my life? We can understand that better in the context of the culture into which Jesus came. And so we're in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. Um, in the series, uh, the sermon today is called Follow Me, because that's the main thrust. Here's what Jesus said. <clears throat> or here's what Mark writes. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon, who is Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. <clears throat> Excuse me. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So here's the thing from this message today. And what I'm going to share with you, I've shared before on numerous times. It's, it's very simple. It is at the heart of Christianity, and it's this. Christians follow Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. That's it. Christians follow Jesus. There's nothing more to it. There's nothing less than that. So, you know, one of the things that I try to emphasize in this sermon series is the fact that when you come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament, what you begin to realize is that the Jews, the Jewish people, and the Jewish faith that you see is in many ways fundamentally different than what you might see in the Old Testament. If you go in the Old Testament, what you realize, if you just look at it, is the relationship that people of Israel had with God was a faith-based relationship. They had faith. It was a covenant. When you come to the New Testament, what you begin to see is a, is a system of beliefs, a system of religion, in essence, that they have all these rules and all these regulations that they have to follow. 
Now, if you go to the Old Testament, and one of the ways that I look at the Old Testament is, is that there are six men, the six key figures in the Old Testament, human figures. And there's some important women also, and it's not to say that, but back then, you know, they wrote things according to the perspective of men. It's just what they did. And they're, they're the three main kind of anchor guys of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, and David. Then there's three guys that are also important. They're transitional guys, uh, Joshua, Samuel, and Elisha. If you look at these guys, you see something about their relationship with God and the other, what they want other people to do in having a relationship with God. If you come from Moses, Moses is the great lawgiver. You know, he gave the Ten Commandments. And you can find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You can find them in Deuteronomy 5. But here's the interesting thing. Right after Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, this is what he tells the people in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. The Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God. You love him with all your heart, soul, and might. In other words, you love God with everything you have. The relationship with God was based not on Ten Commandments. The relationship with God was based on their love for him. Joshua followed Moses, took the people in the promised land. As he was up there in years, he gathered everybody around. And he said, you've got to make a decision now that we're here. You can choose to serve the gods of your fathers beyond the river, back in the old, old, old place. Or you can serve the gods of these Canaanite people. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Some of you have that in the plaque somewhere in your house. But for me and my house, so we're going to serve. Notice Joshua says, we're serving. We're in relationship. We love the Lord. You come to the book of Samuel. And it's named after Samuel. And there's two key figures there that you see. One is the prophet Samuel. And here's what you know about Samuel. From the very beginning, before he was even born... Samuel was set apart. He was dedicated to God. And he lived that life committed totally to what God wanted him to do. That's why the people loved him. That's why the people followed him. He was unlike the other judges and other prophets they had in that time. He completely was committed to God. And if you look at that and and you realize some things, that, that when Samuel did the things that he did, he did it because of his love. He anointed two kings. Hook them horns. They weren't yesterday. I'm sorry. Two kings. Old habits are hard to break. Last night I was doing this, so I hook them, hook them, you know. So two kings, you know. Sorry if you're Aggies, two kings. And here's the th- I don't know where that came from. Sometimes by this service, my mind is just all gone. That's all there is to it. Anyways, he anointed two kings, Saul, and then when Saul had betrayed God, God told, told Samuel, go and anoint David. And so committing treason against Saul, he anointed David. As to be king. Why? Because of his commitment to God. Then David becomes king. David's, you know, famous for Goliath, but he's also famous for the sins he committed. I mean, there's nothing where I hate when people talk about the sins of David, because your name's David. It's like, well, I don't really want to go into that right now, but fine. And then the two sins. He committed murder and adultery. He stole the man's wife and then killed the man. Now, even in our culture today, as you know, as, as liberal as it gets. We still frown upon stealing another man's wife, and we certainly frown upon killing someone. We understand that's not acceptable. And this is what God said about David, that he was a man after God's own heart. And the amazing thing is that all the kings that followed David were judged by David's. They were evaluated by David's faith and love for God, so much so that Jesus is called the son of David. That's what God thought of David. And then you go into 1 Kings 18, you got this guy named Elisha. He's just this prophet. He's just this unbelievable figure. And the people at that time had all began to worship the Baals, the false gods. He just gathered them all together. 
He said, here's the thing. If the Lord is God, you follow him. And if Baal is God, you follow him. In other words, you've got to make a decision. But God expects you to follow him. Then you come to Abraham. Abraham was probably the, the great faith figure in the Old Testament. He was a pagan. God saved him out of paganism. And he said to him, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Ultimately, that means Jesus. In the meantime, I'm going to gather a people coming from your son Isaac. You're going to have a son with Sarah, one son. Now, he had a bunch of sons, but only one through Sarah, Isaac. And I'm going to bless the world through him. And then he tells him in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, what I want you to do is take your son Isaac, whom you love, taking him out Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. That's what he did. He bound him up, took his son on the mountain. He had the knife raised to sacrifice him, and God told him to stop. Now, God didn't test him because God didn't know whether Abraham had faith. God knew. But God tested Abraham so Abraham would know he had faith. And this is what we see way over in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. This is what the author of Hebrews said about Abraham. Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Think about that. What kind of faith do you have to have in God to believe that if you kill the son that he promised would bless the whole world through, that that you can know that he's going to raise him from the dead? See, it's all built on faith. And then you come to the New Testament, and there's no faith. The Jews had a bunch of rules and regulations. They had a religious system. Now, I understand when we look at Christianity, one of the things that I say constantly is we're not a part of a religious system. I understand, I've said this before, that we're categorized in the broad senses of religion. I get that. Because we you know, worship a God, you know, we have, you know, we have things we believe, things we do. But we are not a system of beliefs and a system of practices. That's the religious system. We don't do that because we're founded on a person. And that person is Jesus. Now, does what we do matter? Yes. Does what we believe matter? Yes. Right over now, right now, over in Wombaland and in Upstreet, we're teaching children things. Some of you work there in the early serv- earlier service. We teach little in Wombaland when they're little bitty things. We teach them. God made them. God loved them. Jesus is their friend. We teach them that when they're children, a little bit older. We teach them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And at some point, because Jesus was raised back to life, they got to put their faith in Jesus to be saved. We teach them that because it's important. What we believe matters. If you get into a doctrinal discussion with me, and you want to start discussing, that's fine. And everywhere I think you're wrong, and every point that you stray, I'm going to point that out to you. I have no problem doing that, because if there's one thing I know, I'm always right in what I believe, okay? Just like you. But seriously, if someone strays, we're going to point that out. How you behave matters, How you live your life has consequences. So we want to help you live a life that honors God. We don't want you involved in, in, you know, promiscuous sexual activity. We we want to encourage you away from that. That matters. And if you teach our children, we don't want you involved in doing that. We're going to ask you not to teach because it matters. I mean, how you live your life matters. But here's the thing. The danger is this, that we substitute what we believe And what we do for faith. The danger is that we substitute what we believe and what we do for faith. You can't substitute anything for faith. So like I said, Christianity is not centered around a set of teachings or a set of actions. It's centered on a person, Jesus, in whom we take our life and we trust him. Now, in Mark, 
when we come to that God gospel, we saw from the very beginning, Mark begins his gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the beginning of something. It's something new. It's not a continuation. It's not we're fixing something up. We're starting something brand new. Something new. It has to do with the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, that is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And then we see, in verse 14 and 15, we saw this last week, he begins, he begins the message of Jesus, and Jesus comes and he says, very simple, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means to turn from your way of life, turn from following yourself, turn from living in sin, turn from doing the sinful things that you want to do. You make a pivot, you turn, and it changes direction, and you believe in, you have your faith in Jesus, the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. And now we come and see that in continuing, Jesus is going to talk about follow me, follow me. Here's the thing you need to realize. Mark makes it clear that to repent and believe the gospel is to break with one's old way of life. Get that. To break with one's old way of life and to follow Jesus. You don't repent and believe and keep living the way you were living before. Now, you don't have to change the way you were living to come to God. But once you come to Christ, there is a break from the old way of life to follow Jesus. I shared this with you last week. Between verse 13 and verse 14 in chapter 1, about a year of time passes. You don't get that from Mark, but from other places we know that. And from the Gospel of John, you kind of can fill in that gap of period, time, John 1 through 4. And in John chapter 1... There's a point where Jesus calls six guys to come in a very general way to follow him. We know the names of four of them are mentioned. Andrew and Simon or Peter and uh, Philip and Nathaniel. We also understand that most likely James and John were included in that. Now, I don't have time to explain that to you. On Wednesday nights, we have this Bible study we called Grow. And a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, I was talking about the calling of the disciples, the apostles. It was a process. There's ten passages to talk about it. If you go back a couple of weeks, it explains all that to you. But Andrew and Peter and James and John had already been called by Jesus. He called in a very general way. The calling of the apostles was a process. Now, a year has passed from you know, the, verse 13 to what we see right now. We're well into the ministry of Jesus. There are people that are kind of coming along beside him and following him. But he is now ready to launch, to really begin an intense period of ministry and to get an intense group of guys to follow him. And so it says this, he was along the Sea of Galilee. In the Sea of Galilee, he came basically to four men, two sets of brothers, Andrew and Simon, called, we call him Peter, James and John. Most likely, they were in business together. They were all fishermen. And we know that James and John worked for their father, Zebedee, who probably had a bit larger business. From other passages in the New Testament, we kind of piece together that all of them were kind of in business together. So he comes up to Peter, and he comes up to Andrew, and he says, follow me, or come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it says immediately, and Mark loves the word immediately, immediately they left their nets to follow him. Now, if you don't know that they had already begun the process of following Jesus from the Gospel of John, you would think, Jesus just met him for the first time, and they left. But that's not, that's not the way it goes. They had already begun, but they were still caught up in their own way of life. And so Jesus makes a clear call. He says, now is the time. Now is the moment. There's no wavering. Either you're with me or you're not. 
you come follow me. And the word phrase, the, the first time you use the term follow, we see in the New Testament follow there. Uh, some of your versions have come after, to come alongside. When it says they followed him, it's a little bit different word. It means to take a journey. The idea then is that Jesus to come along, called them to come alongside him and they took a journey with him. We call this process discipleship. They became disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> and it says that when he called them, he called them with a purpose to become fishers of men. He called them with the purpose that they would help bring other people to become disciples. And so we see this sense of calling with purpose. Now, a disciple is one who follows someone in order to imitate them. The concept of discipleship is really of imitation, of practice. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we look at discipleship, and we may not fully grasp the, all that's involved, but it, it speaks of kind of an abandonment of what your own thoughts may be to take up the ideas and teachings of someone else. So uh, in, in, in Greek culture, you had Socrates. He had a disciple named Plato, had a disciple named Aristotle, and they taught certain philosophies that affect us to this day. And so what has happened that Jesus said, you come alongside me and you're going to be imitators of me to take the process that I'm calling you to to other people. In Matthew chapter 28, we see the Great Commission. He says, go, and what's he called them to do? The command is to make disciples, to make more people like me, to follow me and to make more people that follow me. Now, a lot of time what we do in our culture today when we talk about discipleship is kind of a light version of what Jesus talks about. You can go on some church's websites and you can see what's their purpose or what are they looking to do. And they'll say, we just want to make passionate disciples for Jesus. All right. What does that mean when you say that? I, I've called, uh, I've interviewed, I don't know how many people for over the years for different positions on staff uh, at, at numerous churches. And, and, and the common to all of them, most all of them will say something like, when you ask them, what are you trying to do in ministry? Well, I just want to make disciples of people. All right. I don't know what that means. It's kind of like if you opened up a really classy restaurant and you're interviewing someone to be chef, and you said to chef, what do you want to do? I just want to cook. All right. Well, I can hire a cook. I want a chef. What do you mean by that? And that's kind of like, what do you mean by you want to disciple people? And normally, our concept of discipleship is we're going to teach you a few things over here. You believe these things we teach you, and you do these things you should do, and don't do some other things that we've discipled you, and that's not it. That's part of it. To disciple someone is to help them realize that they have to abandon their old way of life to completely commit to Christ. Now, we're not saying you abandon your job. That's not it. It's not that you abandon your family. It's that your passions and your priorities change. When you become a follower of Jesus, when he has saved you, when you have repented of going your own way, so you no longer do that, and you have moved to a place of following Jesus, you believe and you follow what you are doing is you're saying, my passions have changed, and the priorities of my life have changed, so I'm now completely committed to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to follow him. They followed him and became fishers of men. No longer were they casting their nets for fish. Nothing wrong with that. But now they were concerned with helping people come into the same relationship with Jesus that they had. That became their purpose. They gave their life to Christ. Back then, the people weren't called Christians. They were called disciples of Jesus or followers of the way. They were people who took a journey alongside Christ. And they left everything. I mean, James and John, it says, left their father, you know, their, their servants were there, everything. Here's the, th here's the key. Here's what you need to realize. They left their old way of life 
to begin a new life with follow Jesus. They left their old way of life to begin a new life and follow Jesus. They left everything to follow him. Everything. Then there was their priorities changed. Their passions changed. And their life was given to Christ. You know what's interesting? Is we don't know a lot of the things they believed right then. You might say, what did those guys believe? What did Peter and Andrew believe? We don't know much. We know that they believed he, Jesus was the Messiah, but even in that, their concept of the Messiah was different. To them, the idea of the Messiah was going to come build this earthly kingdom. So their idea of Messiahship was still wrong. We don't, really know, we don't know much of what they believed until you get to the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they start preaching and reaching people to come follow Jesus. Then we know what they believe. When they start writing books, you know, John wrote five books. He wrote the gospel, three letters in the book of Revelation. Then we start to see what they mean and what they believe. Peter, you know, he starts preaching and writing and see what he believes. We don't know much now. What do they do? You know, they didn't do a whole lot. I mean, they argued amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. They did that. And, you know, they, they, they... you know, when Jesus wanted to feed some people, they, they kind of said, Jesus, why don't you not do that? And he said, no. And so they worked really hard and found a kid with some fish and bread. They did that. At one point, Jesus sent them all out, and they did some cool things, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Until the book of Acts, we don't see them doing much. In fact, the only people we ever really see anything about of these guys, for the most part, is Peter and John. But here's what we know. They followed him. With everything they had. Because that's what it meant. So here's the thing. Repent, believe, follow. This is the call of the Christian life. This is what Christ calls us to. It forms, it is the foundation, it is the basis of everything we do. At least according to Jesus. According to him it is. Repent, believe. It's not that complicated. See, what we do is we tend to make things too complicated and forget how very simple, not easy, but simple Christ made things. He said, this is all that matters. He said, I came to seek and save people who were lost. I came that you might have life to the fullest. So there's what you do. Repent of your sin. Quit living for yourself. Renounce that system. Put your faith in me and come follow me. Come walk alongside me. And in doing that, you're going to find yourself reaching other people because that's what we do. And that's what life is. Now think about what that means. If you're already a follower of Christ for a church, think what that means. See, most churches, what's in our mindset is the more things we can do, the better off we're going to be. Let's do everything we can. Let's have all these programs and all these ministries, do all this stuff to try to reach as many people as we can reach. Though it really doesn't work normally. It really doesn't. And I have people come up to me all the time, or to one of the staff guys, with great ideas for ministry. And it's not that they're bad ministries. It's just we always evaluate things very simply. How are they going to help us to reach people for Jesus? And if they're not, then we don't do them. Or if they're going to interfere with something else doing that, we just say no. We say no all the time. Nothing personal. It's just not what we do. Think about what it means for you and for me. Is if our focus is just to get people to follow Jesus, not to try to change their behavior. We can't do that anyways. Not to try to create this system of teachings and try to convince them, you need to believe this, you need to believe that, and we'll get into an argument. You know, you know, how many of you do that on social media? You get into all these great arguments on social media. No one ever changes their mind. What a waste of time. I don't ever do that. 
I just tell people you're a fool and go on my way. That's what I do. Yeah, you're an idiot. Who cares? Here we go. No, I don't do that. But here's the thing. Think some of you, we're coming into the holiday season. And if you don't believe, listen, if you don't believe, listen, the holiday season, Christmas, Thanksgiving, a little bit of Halloween. We're coming to the holiday season. If you don't believe the holiday season is here, go to Hobby Lobby, okay? My wife went there yesterday morning. She went to Hobby Lobby. I know, never let her go to Hobby Lobby alone, but I did. And she came back. And I can promise you, we are now prepared for the holiday season more than you would ever realize. I hope you own stock in Hobby Lobby because your dividends went up yesterday morning. I can promise you that right now. We're in the holiday season. You're going to have family members and friends that you know are not followers of Christ and you're going to see them. What are you going to do? Are you going to try to convince them that the way they live their life is wrong? Are you going to beat them over the head with all their mistakes? Or are you going to do this? Are you going to come to them and say, hey, here's the thing. I love you. What will it take for you and I just to talk about Jesus? Just talk about Jesus and just get them, get them to Jesus. What do I say all the time? Get people to Jesus. Why? Jesus will change their life. Now, if they ask you about stuff, sure, I'm not saying you're going to talk about it. But here's what we do. We try to take those few moments and we try to convince them that what they're doing is bad. Or that they're not doing what's good. Or they're not believing the right things. And it doesn't ever work. Because they don't need for you to change them. They need for Jesus to change them. That's what he does, not us. They need to repent to follow him, not what we want them to follow. So why don't you just spend your time helping them know what it means to follow Christ? Think about us as a church. If we would just focus, just focus on helping people follow Jesus how many more people would we reach? And, and yeah, we'll teach them things, and we'll encourage them to live a certain way, but our focus is going to be reaching them to follow, follow Jesus. Now, some of you in your life right now, you're probably at a place where, if you're honest, you don't really follow Jesus. You may believe certain things. That's fine. I can't tell you. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I've had plenty of people come up and tell me all the things they believe. And all the things they do for Christ. I can't, I can't, especially in Bridgeport. For some reason, when you pastor in a small town, I met people, 10 years there, the whole time I was there, I met people. You know, preacher, I'm, I'm a member of your church. So I'm saying, oh, howdy doody, you're a member of my church. It's not really my church, but I've never seen you, so I'm so thankful. And they would say, yeah, when I'm, you know, when I was a kid, I, I got baptized. I used to go to camp, and, you know, and my daddy, he was a deacon, and my grandmama still goes there, you know, and so I'm still with you. And I'm like, it doesn't. Like, any of that matters. Because, you know, the fundamental problem is they were basing their life on something they did when they were a kid and some belief they had, and they're not basing their life on whether or not they're following Jesus. So what you've really got to do is just not that complicated. You've got to get to a place where you say, I'm going to stop living for me. I'm going to stop that, and I'm going to change the direction of my life. I can't do it on my own. Christ will do it. I'm going to repent of my sin. And when I repent of my sin, there's Jesus. And I'm just going to say, Jesus, here's my life. And I'm going to trust you with my life. And I'm going to follow you. And when you know what you do that, Jesus will save you from all that sin. And he'll call you to a life where you can follow him and help other people follow him as well. I mean, that's really what it's all about. 
And I can stand up here and try to convince you that certain things you need to believe. And I can do that. And I can stand up here and try to convince you that if you will do two, three, four things, your life will be okay. I can try to do that too. But ultimately, I know that's not what it's all about. Because this is the one thing I know. That according to Jesus, and that's my only authority, that according to Jesus, you have to repent, believe, and follow. And so I guess the real question, just to ask you this, is have you in your life done that? Have you said, hey, Jesus, I'm just going to follow you? That I can no longer keep living for myself, that that's not working, that me trying to live for me isn't going to cut it. And I'm just going to give that up and renounce that and say that I've sinned and I can't do it. And here you are, Jesus, who went to the cross and died for me and rose back to life so that I can have eternal life. So I'm just going to take my life and I'm going to give it to you. And in doing that, I'm going to spend the rest of my life following, following you. And along the way, I'm going to help other people follow you as well. If you've never done that, you can do that right now. I mean, as I talk to you, you can give your life to Christ. So I'm not here trying to change your life. I'm just here telling you you need to follow Jesus. Because Christians follow Jesus. There's nothing more than that. And there's nothing less. If you've never done that... In a few moments, there'll be some people standing here, including, you know, a lady or two. And if you're more comfortable talking to a woman, you can do that. But if you want to give your life to Jesus and you've never done it or you don't know how, we'll be here. We can help you with that. Listen, it doesn't really matter, you know, how you do it. The most important thing is that you give your life to Christ, that you say, I'm going to follow you. And if you've never followed Jesus, today you can do that. Here's the thing. Whatever else happens when we walk through this place today. The one thing that really matters above all else is whether or not you follow Christ. Because Christians follow Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing less. Well, Father, we thank you for these words that Mark gives to us. And Lord, it's really simple. It's just not complicated. It's a matter of us giving our life to you. It's about having faith. Faith like Abraham, like Moses, like Samuel, David, Joshua, Elijah. But most importantly, Father, the faith that you call us to have, the faith that we realize that we can't save ourselves and we turn away from sin, and Father, we turn to you in Christ. So I pray that all of us today will be followers. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we've said in the past, no matter what has happened in our past, that we'll leave all that behind and we'll give our life to Jesus. Repent, believe, and follow. That's what we do, Father. Nothing more, nothing less. You stand, if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, we'll be here to greet you, but you've come.